Hello, Sean. Thanks for joining me again. It's good to see you a second time. I'm glad I didn't scare you off the last time with the initial conversation we had. Um, so I'm Harry Kemsley, the president of the National Security and Government segment of Jane's. I once again have the privilege of a long-term friend and colleague, Sean Corbett. Sean, just a couple of words about yourself. I'm an ex-Royal Air Force Senior Intelligence Officer and currently the co-chair of the Senior Advisory Group for Jane's. What I thought we might talk about today is the apparent merger of things that we used to call state actors and the non-state actors and how they are actually in some ways becoming less easy to define and dif differentiate. So where do you think we can start in terms of the differentiation between state and non-state? Is, is that actually still a relevant thing for us to talk about, Sean, in your opinion? I think it is in terms of how you perceive a potential adversary. I mean, the context here, so th this is a great subject. It isn't just an intellectual exercise because it will shape how our governments think about potential adversaries and also how to counter them, of course, you know, back to Sun Tzu, know your enemy. So being able to characterise the state, non-state, and I absolutely agree, bottom line up front, that there is a blurring of the two, but the differences do matter as well. I mean, you can have a historical context here and go all the way back to the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, when, you know, the state became prime. It didn't stop people fighting. It was just they fighting over different things, actually. But if you look at the contemporary environment, there's two big factors that people are considering now. There's the rise of China as a global hegemon and also resurgence of Russia trying to set itself back on the world stage. And that's within the context also of COVID, where I think we've seen the state back to being the primary organ of decision making. You know, you can talk about vaccinations, et cetera, without making this a political discussion. But straight away, the gut instinct of all nations was to, OK, what is in our national interest? Now, that doesn't matter just, you know, within the global context, economy and logistics and all the other things. But it also matters when you're looking at potential adversaries. But I do think there has been that blurring of lines. And you just need to have a look at, for example, ISIL, you know, a terrorist organization, violent extremists. But actually, what was their intent? Well, their intent was to become a legitimate state, legitimate in the eyes of their supporters, clearly. So I think it's a really important subject to be able to understand not just the global context, but also how you collect against that sort of adversary. I mean, you and I go back to the days where, you know, much as the, the whole mutual sure destruction thing was, was in our faces, it was a really comfortable time, particularly for the intelligence officer, because the target was very clear. Everybody was focused and collection assets were optimised. And we knew a lot about the, the potential adversary. You know, there were experts that could tell you all sorts of things. And if anything was out of the normal in terms of pattern setting, you'd know straight away. And then that, that focused the, um, the collection assets. Fast forward to today, and it's far more complex. There's a lot more targets out there, a lot more potential adversaries, but in a different way. It's not just hard power and how many tanks have they got? You know, where are they? Where's the dispositions? You know, what is the doctrine? It's the, you know, call it what you will. And there are different phrases, all of which means things, but, you know, ambiguous warfare. Yeah, I think one of the things that perhaps will help us in this conversation, Sean, is, as you've said, there's a, a general understanding of that ambiguity. But what does that ambiguity look like from the national security perspective? So let's pause in there for a while, because I think that would be useful for us to be clear about. Now, without wishing to lead the jury, as it were, my view of this is that if you look at the activities that we've seen in certain parts of the world, not least Crimea, for example, look at what's happened elsewhere, there is clearly a learned process by watching Western governments enact their form of warfare. I think it's clear that other states have learned what the strengths and weaknesses of the Western governments are and how to deal with that, both militarily, but also 
in the domestic arena in terms of matters of economy, matters of political opinion, the discord that goes on within um, social media and so on, all these channels that I sense are being stitched together in a very rich and very clever tapestry of how to deal with the political and military might of the Western governments. So what are the kind of things that you think are starting to blur between the state and non-state? So if you think about the adversary groups out there that we would classify as being terrorists and or insurgencies, you blend into that maybe some narco-terrorism, but then move some of that activity into the state arena. So what are the kind of behaviours that we could see that are being exhibited that would show that blurring between the state and non-state actor? I think I've probably covered a couple, but what else could we describe as being the behaviours of the state, non-state blurring? It's, again, another big big question, actually. So turning to sort of the non-state first, you know, what, what have they got? They've got ungoverned spaces, they're unconstrained, and this is one of the challenges of Western democracies. We are an open society that believes in the, the rule of law uh, and international law. They don't, they don't need to follow it. Mm. So, you know, they, they can conduct their, their operations, whether that's, you know, information operations, you know, unfettered on the internet, they can groom people. And a lot of what they do, of course, is, is by inference and inspiration. It means the target is, is far broader and far harder to identify. And this is where it gets really difficult. How do you define the difference between state activity and non-state activity? And you talked about the little green men, you know, the Wagner group, um, which is basically a Russian mercenary group, but actually brackets um, controlled and directed and funded by the, the Russian government. You know, how do you confirm that they are government sponsored organization. The argument I used to use when I was in Washington was that, you know, if you went to downtown DC 10 years ago and said, if the Russians interfered in our election process, would you consider that to be an act of war? Probably 90% of us would go, absolutely, and we'll have to go and do something about it. You know, fast forward to four years ago and now, you know, it's almost a given, but nobody's doing anything about it. Mm, you know, yeah. So where does that where is that threshold? Where does it stop? So, you know, if the electricity went out on the eastern seaboard, is that a an act of war? Well, partly accountability. But what is the threshold? Now, I worry that the threshold is getting greater and greater and greater. I think as well, Sean, there's also a degree of how do you prove it? Whilst we suspect we perhaps can some degree prove certain aspects of what you've just described, bringing it all together and seeing it for what it really is, is a great deal more difficult than the shock army rolling across the East German plains and saying they're about to do something very bad. It's very obvious there's a physical presence. In the cyber domain, in the cognitive domain, these things are considerably more difficult to, in quotes, prove, or indeed to manage because they're so widely dispersed. They're, they're affecting so many different channels. And some of them may well not be malicious. Some of them might actually be a well, well-meaning uh, political discourse. But anyway, the point I'm making is how do you prove these things? How do you really manage and deal with them? As well as, as you said, Sean, how do we actually counter them and overmatch them, taking them to a place where there is a disincentive for actors to do this, whether they're state actors or non-state actors? If I could just pick out one or two things from ambiguous warfare that we are starting to see as trends, what are the one or two things that we really need to focus on in terms of how we start to modify the way we approach and deal with it? I think the big thing for me is an ability for some states in particular to leverage all aspects of national power. And I focus on China, who is absolutely fantastic at this. You know, there's a reason we still study Sun Tzu and, you know, the, the concept to win without fighting. That's exactly what they are doing. They are pulling all the levers that they have access to. And of course, 
authoritarian states find it much easier to combine all those levers you know so for them really it's all about combining the economic with the military i do worry about china in terms of its economic influence but also outreach if you look at their program to share for free vaccinations uh, for covid with some of the poorer african countries they're not doing that out of altruism they are doing that to increase influence and actually you know have them in hock for the future and where does that finish yeah so i'm not going to discount the the hard military power piece of it um which so many defense pundits spend a lot of time looking at um and there's an awful lot of information out there to help you understand that hard military power i'm not going to ignore that it is an it, it is a spectrum of capability that we need but i'm going to focus us in then on this soft power and this ambiguous warfare piece we talked about a, lo a lot of activities you know the non-altruistic truth behind vaccination programs in africa well, I think, they, I think the Chinese would take a different view. They would say that that is entirely what they're about. So how do you connect that with the other things that you need to connect it to to make a case that this isn't an altruistic program? This is actually a part of a much bigger scheme. How do we do that? And what does, what does that mean for intelligence? That is a really difficult question, as you well know, because, you know, let's go back to the threat capability plus intent plus opportunity. What we're talking about really is is the intent, understanding what they really mean. Because as you say, the Chinese go, no, no, we're being, we're just being good international partners. You know, we're helping the world global economy. We're also taking that that international role that we think, incidentally, historically, that they've always had that we just didn't really understand. So it's understanding what the intent is. And that is really hard to do because, you know, you're relying on people's thoughts, it relies on something more subtle, and that is to really deeply understand and get into the culture of the organization or the country that you're talking about. You know, so in the China case, you know, I do think it's like, well, China's over there. Let's just look at it from a very traditional perspective. But you've got to understand the language. You've got to really understand the people that are in the leadership roles and what their history is and where they come from. China relies an awful lot on its history you know, all the way back to the dynasty, which is really important to them. And there's a really good article, actually, by General McMaster on that, that to understand China, you need to understand the history, but you also need to understand the culture as well. And in the West, traditionally, we've not been very good at that. Mm. And then there is looking at their economy. How is it developing? Because don't forget as well, in the Chinese case, is that they also have internal struggles. You know, they've got a lot, a big population there that needs to be fed and clothed. And they have almost this moral agreement that as long as the state looks after you, then you will actually, you know, look after the state, so to speak, and not and not say anything against it. And that's quite tricky because, as with most countries, there China is a multicultural society mm. with lots of different uh, ethnic groups uh, and languages. So it's understanding that that whole complete picture that's the challenge. Yeah, and I think that is as much about education as it is about process or technology. I noted in a report I read recently about the number of students, although the number has dropped to be fair, out of China, um, students that flood out of China into Western economies, Western societies to learn about all sorts of things. But there's no question that's importing a degree of understanding of our culture and our way of life. Um, and there are very few people that seem to go the other way. But to really understand a culture, you've really got to import that. You've got to get to a point where you understand it at a level that is more than just an academic understanding from afar. And that will be a long term thing. In the meantime, we've still got to try and integrate these multiple sources of information and see the big picture. The, the classic analogy 
of the jigsaw puzzle without the picture to refer to to understand how the jigsaw goes together you know you've got all these pieces how do they come together and some of those pieces will be very very hard to find let alone to put together with other other bits of the same jigsaw for me that that is the problem with the intelligent situation is that it's actually relatively easy to count from satellite imagery for example orbats where things are how many of them there are if they've moved and we will probably always defer to that because it's a relatively straightforward thing to do and it also aligns quite well with our definition of warfare with the emergence of this more ambiguous form of warfare the so-called below the threshold um, activities and the diverse nature of the actors and the actions they're taking i think it's going to be really really hard for us to a prove anything and create a situation where we're able to act with certainty about what it is we're acting against but if we don't start to grapple with these multiple facets of the ambiguous warfare we're talking about between state and non-state types of warfare, then I think we're going to continue to struggle or and or we're going to start to become increasingly irrelevant to the actual threat we face. And they will look at our massive, hard military power and ignore it and flank it, just work around it. Yeah. So with that said, which sounds a little bit um, depressing in terms of intelligence, I think that the task, the task is clear how that task is actually going to be carried out and how we're going to get to where we can integrate um, the multiple sources we need and understand the picture that we're starting to form. Um, perhaps that's a topic we can pick up on another session as we uh, will probably run out of time for today. But that's something that I'd like to leave as a bookmark for future conversation. How does the intelligence community across government, not just military intelligence, across government, how does it bring together the picture that it needs to act upon the threats that are actually there, quote, sub-threshold within a a range of warfare definitions yeah absolutely and and you know not not stealing our thunder for later but yeah and that's what the intelligence community and, and people like ourselves have to do they have to sort of think differently about how to collect intelligence and what that intelligence is um what kind of things do you think would be better suited to the commercial environment in this ambiguous state that we've been talking about for the last 20 minutes what is it that the open source environment like jane's and other organizations like jane's what what is it that we could focus on that the government's don't need to, don't know how to, but could leave to us? What could they federate out to us? I think the obvious one right up front is the ability to leverage innovation. Any procurement process within government, for good reasons and some bad reasons as well, takes so long that particularly in the in today's information innovative age, you know, by the time you've implemented something, it's too late. So, so why go through all those machinations using very clever people that are already out there in the community for, for lots of different um, applications? Just leverage them and say, right, you know, there's this huge amounts of data, manage, sort it, produce it in a way that is, is it for us able to do the so what and the what if, which I think should be always uh, an analyst's function. Um, you know, within government, I don't think, certainly the Western governments always, I don't think we're going to get to the stage soon where they're outsourcing the actual analyses themselves, although that that stands to be tested over time. It's all about trusting, trusting the analysis, trusting the data as well. But by getting the data in a way to be able to be used by the analyst to go, that's what that means. I think that's, that's really the sweet spot, I believe. Yeah, yeah certainly I've I've witnessed a, a huge transformation in an organization that's actually very old, Jane's 123rd year this year. And the amount of change I've seen, driven not extent, not entirely by technology, but certainly enabled by technology. I wish I could have seen as much change in as short a time when I was in the service of Her Majesty in the UK government. I found it very frustrating how slow we were to pick up 
those innovations that you talked about. And yet in the commercial environment, it's so much easier, largely because it's motivated by a commercial bottom line that drives the behaviours in a way that it just doesn't in a government environment. I think what we'll take forward from that in terms of this ambiguous warfare problem and the rich seam of various things we need to look at is let's pick up on that in the future in terms of what does this really mean for intelligence? What does it mean for the commercial intelligence environment? And how does that go forward in a partnership way for governments and non-government organizations, international organizations and commercial organizations all coming together to address the challenges of the future? But for today, as ever, Sean, thank you very much. A great session. Good to speak to you.